Amen. All right. We are uh, in a series called So You May Believe, going through the Gospel of John and a deeper teaching through the summer. And uh, we've been in this for a few weeks now. Uh, and if you've missed out, they are all online on our website and on SoundCloud and on iTunes uh, as well. And so far, we've talked about John, the personality, John, uh, his history. We've talked about the historical background and the literary devices he uses. We've talked about the seven uh, signs that reveal that he is the Messiah. We've talked about the seven witnesses that testify that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We talked about him as the Logos in the first chapter of John, that he is the Word of God made flesh. And this whole book is really to put Christ on trial. The world began to put Christ on trial during his time here, but really it was the world that was on trial. And John uh, is writing, John, the, the, the disciple of Jesus, the last one of the apostles to remain, is writing to a new generation of Christians after all of the other guys have kind of gone on, and their Gospels have already been written, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And uh, he's trying to ensure that they know who Jesus is. Uh, They've maybe heard about him, but they don't know him. That there is a truth to be revealed, a light to be revealed uh, to... He's not just another guy. He's not just another rabbi, just another teacher. He's not just another prophet. Uh, that he is God, uh, and he is God who came in the flesh, all right? So we, we kind of stopped last time about the seven uh, significant signs that they did. If you kinda just, just kind of recall them, he turned water into wine. He uh, healed the nobleman's son. He healed the lame man. He fed the multitude. He walked on water. He healed the blind man. And his last one that he did was raising Lazarus. So today, this is really exciting, today we're going to talk about the seven statements uh, that he made about himself. Uh, There are people around the world today that do not believe Jesus ever declared himself as God. They think that he always just said he was another guy, another prophet, especially Islam and and even science, like even, um, even in secular studies and secular universities, the one I went to where my religious minor's in, they, they all said Jesus never said he was God. We're about to refute that claim uh, emphatically. Seven times over, we're about to refute that claim, all right? So let's look in the Gospel of John. Turn with me to John chapter 7, verse 28. And we're going to go through each statement individually. Uh, we'll go quick because we only have a f- less than an hour here. John chapter 7. Verse 28. All right, if you're there, somebody say amen. All right. Then Jesus cried out in the temple, teaching and saying, You both know me and know where I am from. And I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. Whom you do not know, I know him because I am from him and he sent me. And it goes on, and look in chapter 8, verse 39. Chapter 8, verse 39. And they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not too. 
This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, we're not born of fornication. We've got one father, God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. That's a pretty powerful statement. And not normal, random people are going to make that. Even Muhammad is not going to say those things. This guy is either crazy or he's true. He's either a liar or he's telling the truth, all right? So uh, these are I am statements. And in between John 7 and John 8, Jesus says uh, that the living water of God, I'll just read that. He says in chapter 7, verse 37, he says, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, you stood and cried out, saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. For he who believes in me, as the Scripture says, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But he spoke this of the Spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. Okay, so let's just kind of put this in context before we get into the seven things. Who is Jesus and what is Jesus? There's a definition here, and I even posted this morning. When we say the name Jesus Christ, most people think that's an expletive, right? They just shout it out, Jesus Christ. But it really is not what, it's not just a name, it's a who. And his very name means something. It's really not a name, it's about who he is. The word Jesus is Yeshua or Joshua, it means Savior, that he is Savior. That God chose that name for him, told Joseph, that's what you're going to name your kid. Not Jesus, you're going to name your kid Savior. So in the Jewish world, what did they say when they were saying something to him? Hey, Savior. Hey, Savior. Hey, Savior. It sounds a little different now when you say, let's sing about Jesus. No, let's sing about Savior. It's a title. It's more than a name. And then the word Christ is uh, Messiah. That's the same word. And it means anointed one. All right? So anointed one. That anointed one means that he was the foretold king that had been prophesied for many years that he would be anointed of the Spirit of God to be a high priestly king, and he would usher in the day of salvation that God had told us about since, the, uh, since Genesis chapter 3, when the, he would crush the serpent's head. That same messianic anointing. He says, this is Savior, anointed, kingly priest. So every time you say Jesus Christ, that's what you're saying. Savior, anointed, kingly priest. Isn't that awesome? So I love, I don't know if they're going to use an expletive or not. They don't know what they're saying. But every time they say his name, they're saying Savior, anointed one, kingly priest. Isn't that awesome? So it's who he is. So even as the Pharisees are about to debate him, even as religious people are about to debate him, as you debate him, you're calling who he is. That's pretty cool. All right. So these are I am statements. And every single one of these is linked with a miracle. Jesus backs up who he is with what he does. And he's going to selectively do some things here in a moment to say that through the seven signs we've already talked about last week, we're going to about this. He says seven statements with those. And of these statements, there's a miracle that's going to show you who God is uh, and who we need him to be. And Jesus says to these people, he says, I am from God. I'm not just some guy. I am from God. He definitively says, I am from God. And he says, they say, but we know God. We have Father Abraham on our side. You're not God. We know God. He says, if you knew God, you would know me. All right? Somebody say amen. amen. Okay, so all in all, these I am statements are to help us in John's gospel and help our, John's readers 
to identify that Jesus is divine. He is the ever-existing God. So look at John chapter 6, verse 35. Let's get her going. John chapter 6, verse 35. So Jesus has just multiplied fish for the 5,000. He's walked on some water. People have come and found him on the other side, and they've followed him, and they, man, they're marveled by what he has done with this multiplication uh, miracle, all right? And it was told, um, and they would have all known, think about Moses and giving manna, all right? So Jesus in the same desert, Judean desert, has provided fresh bread, uh, pita bread, on the other side of the Jordan River, just like Moses saw in the same wilderness, and they would know that that Moses gave manna, but Jesus wants them to know that it's while their primary interest is often food, he wants to go deeper with them. In, the, uh, in Exodus, when um, the, Moses, multi, you know, God multiplied the manna to them, the, uh, the rabbis had always taught out of tradition that the, when the Messiah comes, he will do the same miracle like Moses. He will multiply the manna again. Okay, so here's what Jesus says. He's just multiplied the loaves and fishes. He gets around the other side. They follow him. And uh, he says in chapter 6, verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, or verily, verily, or amen, amen, I said to you, it's not Moses who's given you the bread out of heaven, but it's my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. So they credit it to Moses, but remember it's God. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Now, note the context of John chapter 1. What has proceeded from the Father, not just physical bread in the Old Testament, but now in the New Testament, what has descended? It is Him. The old bread descended from heaven in the Old Testament. Now, heavenly bread, the source of life. So, you got physical sustenance that gave you life in a dry and weary, barren land when you needed to trust in God, in a dark place where your enemies surrounded you and you were sure to die without the provision or hand of God, you had the supply of God. And that was the only thing that could sustain you 40 years in the wilderness. Otherwise, it was sure death. Certain death by your enemies, certain death by heat, or certain death by starvation. Now we come to that same world. In John chapter 1, he says, Man, but we are in a world of death darkness and the darkness doesn't even comprehend what it's doing and they hate the light and it says that i came down jesus is like i've come down and in the middle of this wilderness this dry weary land where you're certain to die without god then he says in verse 35 i am the bread of life he who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will never thirst but i say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe all the father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Okay, if this guy is not God, what is he saying? I mean, he's literally saying, I came from heaven. They don't want to believe this. They don't want to, underst- they don't want to understand that. Remember, Jews didn't think that God could be at two places at one time. Now, we've talked about the plurality of God in here because he says, let us make man in his image. God's just so big, he's plural. All right? It doesn't make sense to us. It's in the, in, in the natural. We can't understand God. And he's saying, they're like, you can't be God. You're a man. 
He says, but I have come down from heaven. I'm coming from my father. I've proceeded from my father. I am the manna that you ate in the Old Testament. I am that manna. I'm the manna you need in this wilderness for this day, for this time. The eternal wilderness that is about to consume you. And so, okay, let's look at that. So he says, I am. This is the first of the seven I am statements. He says, I am the bread of life. And he says, don't just think about earthly food. Think about food that sustains you eternally. That that food was temporary, but my food is eternal. That goes back into what religion gives you. Versus what relationship gives you, right? Man, you can, you can go through all the religious things. They knew Abraham was their father. They knew the stories. They memorized it from 13 years old. These little boys could memorize the first five books of the Bible and recite it by song. And they knew it. They were experts in it. And he says, yeah, but there's a, that religion. That's just religion. But what I give you is eternal, eternal life. One person, one author says this, the Greek language at this point is so strongly emphatic and is reminiscent of the very words, I am, that God said when he said to Moses in the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verse 4, I am that I am. And they would have known that. When he said, I am, they would have, said, they would have heard him say, God, I am God. I am the bread of life. All right? So this isn't please them. So they think, man, this guy is claiming to come from heaven. This is unacceptable. And uh, we know his mother and father. Look in uh, chapter 6, verse 42. We know this guy. Isn't that Joseph's son? He's the carpenter kid. We changed his diapers, right? We, we know him. He, growing up, he hit my girl. No, he, Jesus never hit nobody. But, you know, like in nursery, he was so horrible. No, they probably didn't say that either. He's probably the best kid ever. But, you know, you, when you know someone, it's like, how do you respect, how do you, I, I was there in the waiting room when Mary was in labor. I know this kid. I wiped his snotty nose when he had a fever or whatever. Like, this, and he's saying he's God? No. But seven times over, he's going to say, let's go on. I am the light of the world. Look in John chapter 8, verse 12. So, maybe... You could say, well, maybe just one time, Pastor Heath, maybe he said he was God, but maybe he was wrong. Okay, well, let's see how convinced he was that he was God. Adulterous woman comes, and they throw her on the ground, and, you know, the whole, he doodles, and they say, who has sand cast the first stone? And this is in the middle of um, a ceremony, okay? It was in a festival in the Feast of Tabernacles, and in the Feast of Tabernacles, that's the festival where Jews would go out in their backyards, they would build booths or tabernacles, many little tents, like we would go camping in our backyard, right? Tried that this summer, didn't work out so well. I'm getting older, right? But, you know, in Louisiana, so sleep on the ground at night in the heat doesn't really go so well. But they would do that. They would go sleep as a family in their backyard, have a little festival. Remember how God covered them by fire in the wilderness at nighttime and by cloud by day. And it was a reminder to trust in God. So every, wouldn't that be kind of cool, just a reminder, every year we got to all camp in our backyards for a few days to remember to trust in God, not in these, eternal, these possessions that we have. They were temporary. Everything is, they was remind them that everything is temporary. That's a new family tradition. Just start doing that. All right. But one of the things they did in Israel, they had this big candelabra in the middle of the city. Now, this is tradition. You're not going to see this right here. And the idea was that Jesus was there as they've called this woman out. They're in the middle of the city. There's this big candelabra kind of reminding us of the menorah, that seven lampstand that's in the temple. That temple lampstand was to show the priests that Jesus, God, is the light, that his sanctuary doesn't need any man-made light. He is the light. 
And Jesus looks in them, and, and probably an illustration, this big candelabra, this big festivity, and everybody's celebrating the fe- festival, festival of lights in a way. Jesus speaks to them, and he says, I am. All right, there's that God word. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisee said to him, you are testifying about yourself and your testimony can't be true. And then that's where we go into the witnesses. So he says, I am the light. Think about what we said in John chapter 1. All things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. And then Jesus says the very same thing of himself. Whoever, I am the light of the world. What does he mean by light? What do you think? What do you think he means? Remember he says, the light was the life. But when he says, when you say, hey, light up the darkness, what comes to your mind? Some, some words. Like, what, what is he saying? What do you think that means? Light. Bring, shed some light on it. Turn on the lights. Bring, bring what? Revelation, Revelation truth, illumination, uh, understanding, right? Uh, comprehension, vision. So he says, I am the light of the world. I am the one who brings enlightening. I'm the one who brings revelation. I'm the one who brings truth. And here he's standing in front of this lampstand, which a multitude of lamps would be there, lighting the evening sacrifice, and all the brilliancy over the city, and he's reminding people, he had just told him, he said, I, just think about the, the wilderness things, I am the fresh bread, the manna. John chapter 7, I am the one who's going to give the living water that you'll never run dry, never thirst again. And now I am the light. All right? What does that make you think of with Moses? I am the fresh bread, the manna who God gave you. I am the water out of the rock of Horeb, the one who came from nothing, from nowhere. I'm the one that flows in the middle of your dry and weary land, giving fresh rings, bubbling up sweet water. Now I am the light, the fire above you that guides you, that protects you, that kept Pharaoh's enemies around you. I light the way of the wilderness in the middle of the darkness. I illuminate your path in a dry place, in a dark place, a place where your enemies are around you. I put fear into them. I bring revelation to you. He's telling them, like, just like Moses, man, I am with you. I am that I am. I am the same God that was shuddering the mountain of Horeb, who spoke. And when you uh, couldn't even touch it, you trembled at my voice. And only Moses could go up there and see me. I am has come to you. Isn't that crazy? Can you imagine that revelation that, they're, that from, to go from God on a mountain... That uh, the Old Testament says it was like as if a volcano that when the Shekinah, tangible glory of God, came down on that mountain, the elders trembled, the people trembled. If a goat went and touched it, the goat died. People said, no, we can't even go up there because all we hear is God's voice as of thunder. Moses, you go and you intercede. And when Moses went up there, he disappeared into a cloud and his face shone with brilliancy that they had to cover it. And that same God who spoke light into the darkness at creation, who spoke on a mountain, who clothed them in fire by night, who provided water out of a rock, who made manna fall from the dew that day, comes to there in the middle of their midst, in the middle of the festival, says, I am is here. I'm the same. Can you just imagine meeting Jesus? 
just in a personal form. And that, I don't even know how it works physically. That big old God came down into a little baby and grew into a man. And he's, can you imagine? He's walked on some water, multiplied some things, pulled a coin out of a fish's mouth. I mean, and they're like, who are you again? I don't know. Are you sure? What do you think, Andrew? What do you think, Peter? Maybe you're, come on. Could he be? Didn't we see him be born? We were cousins. We skipped rocks and we, we knocked and door ditched his mom's house. I mean, we, we did these things together. We're all, they're all cousins. Most of the disciples are cousins, by the way. He said, I am. Man, I am. Can you imagine if just Jesus walked in the room? Just what it would, whoo, power, wonder. Yes. I am. That same light in the burning bush. That's good. I like it. He says, he who follows me as one, as a light going before him, just like that pillar. So that light is life. That light is truth. So he's illuminating your path. So you have to follow that path. That's what he's saying here. And he says, when you do that, you'll have the light of life. I'm the one who shows you how to live life. I'm the one who shows you how to gain eternal life. I have the path lit before you. It's a new world. It's a new spiritual awakening into eternal life. Let's go to the next one. Chapter 10, verse 7. John chapter 10, verse 7. All right. So now we're going to talk about the gate and the good shepherd. Here we're talking about he came... As the way. So Jesus has got this familiar illustration to the first century, one that everybody would understand. And he's talking about a sheepfold. Let's just read one through six first. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door or the gate into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up another way, he's a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls out his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all of his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him, and because they know his voice. A stranger, they simply will not follow, but flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. And he goes on in verse 7, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All right? What does that mean? So in the first century, you can even find them today in Israel, there would be these little pens. We would call them little chicken pens, goat pens, whatever. But they would be stone, stone walls, and they would have an open entrance or maybe a wood door. And some of them would be tall, some would be mid-high, all right? <clears throat> and so if I'm a shepherd, I have hired some guys to, especially if I'm a wealthy shepherd, I've hired my kids or some teenagers or my cousins or my in-laws to watch my sheep. Maybe I have multiple flocks. Every shepherd had their own unique call for their sheep because sometimes multiple flocks would be put into a sheep gate, into this little pen. So when the shepherd come, he'd have his own little call. His sheep would know his voice. They'd know that unique call. So he could call them out. That little porter, that little boy, or that person who would stand at the door, they would usher the sheep in at night, and probably, or normally, a boy or somebody would sleep at the entrance of the door, one to keep out thieves and robbers, because they, they say, well, our four uncles... That's whose sheep is in this pen, my four uncles. They probably had a little cousin guarding the door. And only those four uncles would have that password from that kid. You know, they would, only, they would know their four uncles. And when the four uncles come, each four uncle would have their own little, here, sheepy, sheepy, whatever your call would, you know, chose to be, okay? And they would call their sheep out. 
If I wanted to steal one, I'm not going to go through the boy. I'm going to jump over the back wall and grab a sheep. Same thing with a wolf. Jump over or whatever. Or you'd have to go through the little boy or that person, that teenager who's watching it. So he says to them, he says, I'm the door. I'm the way in. Nobody who's, who's the real guy is going to have to go around the side to get his own sheep. He's got the password. He knows the guy at the door. I am the door. I'm the way in. I'm the way into God's eternal flock. I'm the way you get in and out. I'm that entrance point to get you to God, to get you to eternal life. There is no other way but to heaven but through this door. And in fact, there's only one door in the temple. There was only, this is prophesied, this is God on purpose, man. He, when you build the tabernacle and then when you went to the temple, there was only one way in. That was that main entrance. And before you, you couldn't go in any other way. There was this one curtain or this one door you had to go through. And as soon as you went through it, the first thing you'd see was that sacrificial altar. And that's the thing you had to pass through to get to God. And he says, I'm the way in. And he goes on, okay? So he's like, I'm not a thief. I'm not some guy who's false. I know the password. I know the call. My sheep know my voice. The true shepherd comes in through the door. Thieves and robbers can't come through the door. They've got to climb over the wall. So I'm not some deceiver here. I'm not some false prophet here like you've been warned about. And he goes on. Look in verse 11. He says, instead, this is two into one, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not the shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees a wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches him and scatters him. But he flees because he's just a hired hand. He's not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Even as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay my life down for the sheep. So one of the greatest images probably is Jesus, the good shepherd. Jesus, the good shepherd, he lays his life down. He says that just like the gate to the sheep pen, meaning nobody can enter to the fold, that's him. But he says, I'm also that shepherd, only me. I'm the only one who can make you right with God. I'm the one who leads my sheep. No other sheep, no, all the other, no other voice is the voice of the true shepherd but mine. Don't listen to any other voices but mine. He says, third, I'm the one who protects my flock. So if I was hired by somebody, and this was just an 8 to 5 job, it was probably not 8 to 5, it was probably like all summer or spring long, right? 24 hours a day. Uh, if I'm hired, I'm only making an eight fifty an hour here. I'm not going to die for this guy's sheep, right? The wolf can have it. That dude can go have another sheep. I'll buy it for it, you know, whatever. But he says the shepherd is personally, listen to this, he's personally invested. For many shepherds, those sheep were his source of family's income or the source of his family's wealth. And for Jesus, he didn't need us for anything. But what he's saying there to that first century audience, he says, the shepherd would fight for his sheep. That means those sheep are valuable to him. While that little boy might see a wolf and turn and flee, that shepherd's going to stand guard. He's going to beat that wolf off with his stick, with his hands as he's got to. Think about David fighting the bear and the lion as a little boy in the wilderness. He says, I'm like David. I'm like that. I have an interest in you. Now think about who he is saying this. 
This God of infinite cosmos, this word of God made flesh, this light that illuminates the dark, the infinite God, the eternal creator, comes down to earth, walks in our form, takes our verbal abuse, walks in the dust with us, and says, I have an interest in you. I'll even lay down my life for you. Okay, so see how John, at the very beginning of his gospel, does this cosmic, like I said before, it's like that Star Wars intro. You know, it's like, dun da 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 and you see this, the word scroll on the screen. It's just this big, in fact, that's just John chapter 1. That's what I think of when I think John chapter 1. It's like, man, this is awesome. It's going to be an awesome story, awesome movie. He takes this infinite spiritual light cosmic God, and now in the middle of his gospel, he says, this God is now personal. And he's going to die for you. That's powerful. That's powerful. They would have known that Israel was the flock of God. They would have known that every king was supposed to be a good. David was called a shepherd. Um, And this phrase, lay down his life, is unique to John. He's the only gospel author who says this, that he'll lay down his life. And it means, uh, in the original language, it means a sacrificial death. And it's the same word where John would later use when Jesus took off his towel to wash his disciples' feet. It's the same phrase that Paul will use in Philippians, that he laid aside his divine privileges, and he became as a man and walked among us. It means that Jesus says, I will die for you. I will lay down my rights. I will lay down my goodness. I will lay down my divine privileges for God's people, for his flock for you to be protected from the evil one. He's not just some hireling. He's not just some other prophet. He's not just some Muhammad. He's just not some Buddha. He's not just some other dude out there making a buck on some religious things, getting you to buy holy water. Or give me $500, I'll pray, and you'll get a new car in the mail or something. I mean, he's not doing none of this. He says, I am. And I'll back it up. I'll die for you. How many prosperity gospel preachers are going to die for you? Right? Miracle holy water people ain't going to die for you. Jesus, he died for you. Look at the next one, 11. Chapter 11, verse 25. Number five, I am the resurrection and the life. Now we're getting into the good stuff. Okay, so we just learned about the sign. So every one of these is kind of partnered with a sign. And this one is going to be Lazarus, his greatest miracle. At this last miracle before his resurrection, he comes and he hears about Lazarus' death. Remember we said that Jesus always does something one-up. He kind of does it greater. Instead of coming at the third day, he waits to the fourth day for Lazarus. Just to be sure that all speculation, he was dead. Everything he does is better than the next thing he does. I mean, everything he does, the next thing he does is even better. He heals a man that was 38 years old or 38 years disabled. And then he heals a guy who was born disabled. And then he goes and he raises a guy from the dead. I mean, he just keeps getting better. Everything with Jesus just keeps getting better. And so the Old Testament revelation at the time was not clear. And in this day, there is two groups. We talked about this before. There are Sadducees and Pharisees, the religious people who ran the day. There was a senate, kind of a religious senate, religious congress in that day, just like our country is today, very, very, very divided. The Sadducees were the liberals. They happened to be in power at this time. They did not believe in a literal resurrection. They just thought you died. The Pharisees, the back-to-the-Bible movement, who Jesus mostly preaches about, 
they believed in a resurrection. So they hear this is going on. So remember, this is the people interviewing him. Half the audience doesn't believe in a resurrection. Half do. It's a big debate of the day. His best friend, one of his best friends, Lazarus dies. He waits an extra day, goes down the road. Mary and Martha show up. All right, let's look at what they say. Chapter 11, verse 25. Let's back up just a little bit. Martha comes to him. Let's look at verse 17. They found he was in the tomb four days. Now at Bethany, it was near Jerusalem. He really wasn't even far off. He was only a couple miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary and consoled them. Martha, when she heard Jesus was finally coming, she went to meet him. Mary stayed in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd only been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Oh, really? Right? Be careful what you wish for. Right? Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Yeah, I know, Jesus. I know he'll rise on the last day and again on the resurrection. So she's obviously a conservative, Bible-believing woman. Okay? She's a good Republican in the South. I don't know. Just put some spin on it here. Jesus says to her, no, 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 wait, wait. Honey, listen. I am the resurrection. And there's no last. I'm not waiting for some last day's event here. I am the resurrection. It's not some event that's going to happen. It's not some orb in the sky that's going to show up and raise people from the dead. I am. There's not some thing that's going to make people rise from the dead. I am is going to make thing people rise from the dead. And I am right here, right now. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? That's a good question for the world today. Do you believe this? Do I believe this? Do you believe this? She says to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. What a statement of faith that she had in that moment. And you know the, the story. He would go and he would say, Lazarus, come forth, and they'd come out and, he would, and it would be his last miracle and, and they would want to kill him from then. But in this moment... The supreme power of God, he's finally claimed it. He's, he's by, through his teaching and his miracles, he's always done stuff. But now when he says this, he says, I am that debated thing that you are divided over. I'm the resurrection. And he's teaching, he's, from the very beginning, he's always taught about his resurrection on the, from the cross. But now, for once and for all, Jesus says, there is a real death. There is a real life after death. And that one day the body is going to be raised by the power of God. And, and the believer, his death will be swallowed up in my life. Think about how powerful the life of Jesus is. The Bible also says that if the Spirit of Christ that raised him from the dead dwelleth in you, you too will live. You too will be resurrected. And so it's him, it's him, it's him, it's him. It's not some thing, it's not some doctrine, it's not some belief system. It's a person, it's him, and he's in you. It's not some thing, because I'm a Christian, I signed a member card and I got baptized, this event's going to happen to me. No, he's going to happen to you. It's him. See, take that theology to a whole nother deeper level. He's saying, I, my life, will conquer your death. Not your life will conquer your death. Not your doctrine is going to conquer your death. Not your Baptist card or Assemblies of God card or Catholic card or Methodist card. None of those are going to conquer your death. 
but I am. I'm the conqueror of death. And if I'm in you, then my life, which is in you, will conquer the death that's due you. How many things do you know that are more powerful than death? You met anything? Every now and then we get lucky and we can zap somebody back for a temporary while, but guess what? They're going to die eventually. Anybody ever stop death yet? Come back from the dead for real? Only a few times in Scripture has it ever happened, even in the ministry of Jesus. And he says, I am the life that's eternal. I am the one that when Paul says it in 1 Corinthians, that death is swallowed up in victory. That the sting of sin is death. But now where, O death, is your sting? Man, he swallows it. He is powerful enough that if you believe in him, you will never die. You're going to make an instant transition from the old life to the new life. Let me tell you something else. When you believe in Jesus Christ and he comes in you, you're already living eternal. That eternity begins the moment you trust in Christ. Eternity doesn't begin when you die. It begins when Christ is in you. So that eternal life is already born in you. So death is just something else I got to go through. I'm already living forever right now. That should make you happy, by the way. A little excited to go through your life. Then what are you going to do to me? That's where it says, what is man that you are mindful of? But then he says also, he's like, what, is, what should I fear in this life? If God is for me, who can be against me? I'm already living forever, baby. What are you going to do? Come on, world, crash around me. Though the mountains fall into the sea, God's my refuge, right? I'm already living forever. I got this. He's got this. He's got this. Whoo. How many people have eternal life? His life flows, flows in us, all right? And then go on to chapter 14, verse 6. Some good doctrine in here, y'all. Chapter 14, verse 6. And he kind of goes again and says it another way. He comforts his disciples after washing their feet, and he's predicted his betrayal. And he tells them that you shouldn't be troubled because I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And they're saying, well, where are you going? Well, I'm going to go prepare a place for you. And, and, and later on, you're going to come with me. Where I am, you'll be also. Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. This is like the 14,000th time he's told him he's going to die on the cross, by the way. Um, and he says to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. Don't you get it? Nobody comes to the Father but through me. So he, in a way, he pulls them all together. I am, there's the God word, I am the way, the door, the gate, the shepherd. I'm the entrance point to God. I'm the path to eternal life. I am the way. I'm also the truth, the truth that sets you free, the truth of illumination, the truth that I am the word of God made flesh. This is true. So you may believe that if you would abide in me and my word abides in you, you'll have my father and I will make an abode with you. And we will be with you always to the very end. I'm not leaving you. I'm with you. That's the truth. I'm also life. I'm also eternal life. It's not something that happens to you. It's a person. It's me. It's God. It's I am. And no one gets there, but they're right here through me, right? He said, if you'd known me, you'd know my father. So he claims oneness with God. And from now on, you'll know him and you've seen him. 
I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He makes it clear I'm going back up to the Father, that He's the only way back up to the Father. He says that heaven's a real place. It's a loving place. It's an exclusive place. Not everybody's going to go to heaven, by the way, but those who trust in Jesus. He's not one among many ways to God. He is the only way to God. Can I get an amen on that one? He's the only way to God. There's no other way to God. And the early church was even called the way for a while because of its insistence on that one point. He is the only exclusive way. Don't watch Oprah. There are many not, there's not many paths to God. There's not all these things that, that there's, there's a big movement that hell doesn't exist. And let me tell you something. The biggest proof that hell exists, it's called the cross. If there was no hell, Jesus wouldn't have to die on the cross. So you can't believe in the cross and not believe in hell. Right? Why would he have to die if there's no hell? If everybody's going to make it to heaven, what's the point? Why do all that to yourself? He saved us from sin. Sin leads to death. Death is eternal separation from God. His love is manifested in that. He loves us to save us from hell. All right. Last one, 15. John 15. I am the true vine. Of all the passages I probably know the most in Scripture... I've heard preached the most in Scripture. It is this one. One of my favorites at the time that I heard it, my pastor, no joke, in high school, our church was going through some stuff, and he preached on John chapter 15, I kid you not, probably almost the same sermon six times in a row. (laughs) And they asked him, when are you going to change your subject? He says, when you get it. (laughs) All right? So let's just say our church at that season and that time, we understood the vine, all right? He says, I am the vine. John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the vine, and my father is the vine dresser or the gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You've already been clean of the, because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it's abiding in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. And I won't go into all of this because this whole sermon is just phenomenal. Part of his farewell discourse. And when we get into the passion narrative here um, in a couple of weeks, man, it's going to get really intense. It's going to be awesome. But simply this, he says, I'm the true vine. Israel called itself the vine. And uh, not this coming Sunday, but next Sunday, I'm going to talk to you about the branch, the righteous branch of David and why that should matter to you. He says, I'm the vine. Israel was the vine. And you thought Israel was the source of life. And you thought yourself, your people, you thought your ritual, your law of Moses, your, new com- your old commandments, your covenant, you thought that you had the source, that you were the connection of, from God to the world. But he says, no, no, no. I am the vine. I'm the source. I'm the connection between you and God. He's the gardener, the vine dresser. He's the guy setting all this in motion. But I'm those nutrients. I'm the roots. I'm the stump. And out of that stump, there's branches. And they produce fruit. And you can't produce anything. If you cut something off from its stem, from its root, it withers up and dies. And if something withers up and dies, the vine dresser throws it away. And I love roses. I have roses. If those of you have tomato plants, it's the same way. Sometimes you gotta, if you have a V, you clip off the thing in the middle. Some, if you have roses, we have roses out here. If a rose produces a bloom, you want more roses faster, 
clip the roses down to the next, the next branch, down to the next V. And that rose will keep producing. And honestly, if you don't do that very often, your roses really will just die and not do very well. You need to clip the roses. He says the same way. Every time you bloom, every time you produce fruit, God wants you to be the most fruitful. So he'll take that small little dead thing. You're not totally dead. He'll take that little thing out of your life, and he'll produce more fruit through you. But how do you do that? Because there's a connection there. There's a supply of nutrients, of source. There's a connection of the Holy Spirit that is producing life in you. It's producing love and joy and peace and patience. The things that really connect you to God. Not just this religious stuff of tradition that you've memorized from your ancestors. No, this supply of nutrients that comes every day as you meditate on me and my word and abide not in a thing, but in a person, in Jesus, in the being I am. And so he says, I am the true vine. And if you're lacking in me and lacking in some way, abide in me. The most frequent symbol of Israel was the vine. And for him to say this was almost blasphemous to say, I am Israel. You're not Israel without me. There's no religion without me. There's no covenant without me. There's no Moses without me. There's no Abraham without me. There's no, there's no Ten Commandments without me. That's pretty powerful. That's worth getting stoned over, crucified over, and that's what's going to happen. Israel had grew apart from God, and he says, I'm the one that gets you back to there. Dead wood is worse than fruitlessness. Dead wood could harbor disease and decay, And an untrimmed vine would develop long, rambling branches that would produce little fruit. And they would uh, just go to dead wood. So the vine grower, he would make sure the vine is healthy and productive. And what Jesus was about to do, what God was about to do through Jesus, was cut off the dead things of Israel and take that big vine that had been growing and turned wild and dead, cut it off at the root, and then grow something new. That would be you and me. This new grafting into the vine, a new spiritual Israel, a new spiritual kingdom where one had been in the natural, now one's going to be in the spiritual. And for a time, till the time of the Gentiles would be fulfilled, read Romans, that he would graft us along with Israel, not that we'd be prideful, by the way, but that we would grow along with him and he would call the nations to this new vine himself. And it'd be like this big little bitty mustard seed that nobody thought was very much worth anything and would grow to this huge entire tree that even the birds would come and rest in its branches. And that would be the church. That would be him. And there's no separation. See, before there was a separation, God up in heaven, Israel down here on the earth. But he says, no, no, no. Now I'm, I am, and I'm the head, you're the body. We're connected, you see. We're not, we're not separate anymore. And when I do, you do. We move together. We work together. We're in sync together. The same blood that throws, flows through the brain flows through the hand, flows through the feet. You can't say that you're a part of something else. The hand doesn't say to the foot, you're not a part, the eye, the ear. It's all one body, and I'm the head. I'm the vine. Don't you understand? There's no church without Jesus. There's no separation of church in Jesus. It's him. The church is not a building, it's not a denomination, it's not a program, it's not an event, it's not a religion. It's people in Jesus. So wherever you're in, Africa or Asia or Fiji or Guatemala, you have Jesus, you're connected to the church. All around the world today, the greatest nation on earth is the church. All right, let's wrap it up with this. Okay. 
There are two things I want you to take home from all of these things. That nobody claims what Jesus claims. There is no religion in the world right now that is in existence that claims, makes the claims and backs them up like Jesus does. No one says these things. There will be people who come, there will be false messiahs that say, I'm the Savior, I'm the Messiah. None will say what this guy has said. None will prove it with miracles either. But John, 98 times, says the word believe. He wants you to believe that Jesus is God. One of the most frequent words is believe. 98 times, it always occurs in a verb, never in a noun, like believe, like I am in the faith, like my belief system of, of this. This is not, he says, no, it's an action. It's something I want you to do. I want you to believe on him. And it's this impression of action. It means if you believe on him, you'll become his follower. If you don't believe, you'll become his opponent. At any rate, if you meet him, you can't be neutral. There's a choice here to be made in John. You can't read the Gospel of John and not make a choice. You've read the Gospel, now you're responsible for it. You've met him, now you have to know him or you have to disgrace him. You have to turn from him. There's, Jesus is not a neutral party. There's no independence. One or the other, hot nor cold. You're not going to be lukewarm. You have to make a choice. What will you do with this day? Believe or disbelieve? Receive him or cast him away? He uses a number of words like this. He says, some are to receive him. You'll either drink from him or you'll come to him. You'll eat from him. You'll enter through him. And it's like this gift. He says, it's like drinking fresh water. You enter by a door into the sheepfold. There's a need that you have that's going to be met. Like that thirst is going to be quenched or that hunger is going to be satisfied. And then you're going to have an experience with him. You'll never be the same again once you believe on him. And believing is not just this matter of fact. That's, man, if LaSalle Parish can get anything, that'd be that. Man, it's not just a matter of fact. Oh, yeah, I believe there is a Christ. So do the demons. They tremble at him. They have reverence for him. They have to ask for permission even to go and say some pigs. We can sit and vote Republican and carry our guns and wave our Confederate flags and do whatever we want to do and say that you're a Christian. But what have you done with Jesus? We'll preach that another day. You have to take action when you meet this guy. The other word is not only belief, but is life. And life is the result of the belief. It's the expression John will use that when you encounter him, when you receive him, when you drink of him, when you come to him, when you eat of him, when you enter through him, life will happen in your, in your life. Think about Nicodemus when he says, Nicodemus, dude, you're an expert of the law. You know this stuff. How do I have to explain it that a man must be born again? It's like the wind, man. It's like it's the effects of it. You can't tell where the wind comes or goes, but you see the effects of it. Something changes in the atmosphere when the wind shows up. And when the Holy Spirit shows up in your life, something should change in the atmosphere. There should be a temperature drop. There should be something moving, something of effect that happens when you have believed on Christ, received Christ, and are in Christ. Like there's something living, breathing, moving. You get convicted of things you were never convicted about. You start saying things differently than you ever said. The words change from bitter water to sweet water. 
You start forgiving people that never even offended you, that even knows. <laughs> you know, like you start repenting for things you didn't even ever know you could repent of before. You start living joyfully, sacrificially, on purpose. You start giving thanks for God. You wake up in the morning, you want to talk to God. There's something alive because the Holy Spirit in you loves to talk to God. The Holy Spirit in you loves to pray to God. He loves to read God's word. He loves to go to church, by the way. Mm-mm-mm. Put that one in there. The Holy Spirit loves to commune with Christ because he is Christ, because he is God. He loves, the Father loves to be one with himself. So Jesus prays in John 17, Father, I pray they be one with us as you and I are one. What do you think? Jesus don't want to have fun with you? Jesus don't want to talk to you? Jesus just wants you to do some works on this earth and just die and go to heaven and then we'll have fun together and live together? No, that's now, Right? Heaven is now. This is the kingdom of heaven now. It has come upon you. I mean, live for eternity now. Be in the Holy Spirit now. Rejoice and sing always in the Lord now. Have heaven on earth. That's every Sunday. Jesus is in the room. Come on, somebody. This ain't no dead religion. We're not just here to talk about some dead guy and sing some songs about Christian or Christians or Christmas or Easter. This is Jesus. We're the body. He's the head. We're all connected. So let's start living like it. He's the agent of regeneration. He brings rivers of living water. And Jesus, through all this, illustrates, I'm what you need. I'm the bread. I'm the life. I'm the water. I'm the gate. I'm the door. I'm the shepherd. I'm the vine. John is going to bring us face to face, especially as we're about to get into the crucifixion in the coming weeks. He wants to bring you face to face with Jesus his words, his works, into a great decision. From first to last, Jesus is described in his gospel as deity, as God. From 1-1 to chapter 20, verse 28, Jesus is the I Am. He's God. And he's come in human form that he might give life, to bring life to those who sit in the valley of the shadow of death. And not only does he die for us, but he's resurrected for us. And as a living Lord, he calls for us to have devotion and loyalty. To believe on him is to gain his life and live in his life. Amen? Amen. So a question for you as we close is this. How do the I am statements impact you to a greater appreciation of Christ? How do these statements that God the Logos comes in human form and says... I'm what you need in the wilderness of life. When death is at your door, the enemy surrounds you, you don't know where to turn, you're sure to die without my help. I am is here. I've come to lead you, protect you, guide you, give you light, give you revelation, sustain you. And when that moment comes, yes, to resurrect you. Amen? Would you stand with me tonight? How does the I am impact you? Can we just take a few moments and just worship? Can we do that tonight? Just worship him. Talk to the great I am. He's in the room. Why not just acknowledge him? Let's just do that all across the room. Father God, Lord Jesus, we worship you. Oh God, thank you for who you are, Lord.